You are standing outside the entrance to a dark and gloomy cave. If you are anything like me, you have been here many, many times before. It isn't always the same cave. Once it was a cave-like opening somewhat obscured by vegetation. Another time it was a wizard's mouth, a fissure in the side of an active volcano. This cave actually seemed to breathe, exhaling a cloud of steam and then slowly inhaling like a man breathing on a cold day. Once, it was a passage from the throne room of Snur, the fire giant king, extending endlessly under the earth. Once, memorably, the cave was made of metal. It was the outer airlock of a spaceship which had crash-landed in the crags of the barrier peaks. You don't know what lies in that darkness, but you've heard rumors. There are troglodytes, dark elves, a long-dead wizard, terrible creatures, treasure. You are also here to learn the truth. So strike a light. You're going in. I am the Great Hall. Once you gloried in killing, now you are of a higher level. To attain the highest level, you must be holy in all your life. The holy man must walk alone. When you are worthy, you must come to the two towers and become one with the Great Hall. Madeline finished the history of the Middle Ages, which ended badly. Then she read about the steam engine and the romance of the rose, mechanics and minotaurs, until everything became a blur. The staff of salt planted in the ground became a coal mine run according to the most modern principles and then became dragon's teeth in a blast furnace to flame. Cadmus sowed the teeth in the bosom of the earth and got cadmium, a bluish-white metal obtained from furnace deposits and made from it swords and shovels to do the dragon in. All history, Madeline thought, was more or less the same story. People tearing things from the ground and making them sharp. People doing violence to one another and sticking each other in the ground again. All right, Doug, roll for damages. Hello and good morning. I'm Lee Morgan, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of ThinkBook Radio and distributed by thethinkbook.com. Today is the 14th day of September 2015, and this is our 197th broadcast. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Think42 and at ThinkBook. As the show lumbers back into production after our summer break, we have a number of rabbits up our sleeves, such as Back to the Future with Joe Alexander, an anniversary show tarot reading by a tarot master, and uh, a Halloween show with The Billionth Monkey, and our first installment of the 42 Minutes Book Club with Robert Anton Wilson, plus a trip to the quietest place in the universe to dig for some dark matter and synchronicity. All this and more coming this fall on 42 Minutes. But today, we will again consult our dungeon master to find out what today's campaign holds for us. And hopefully we can destroy all monsters. Good morning, Doug here, and today on 42 Minutes, we pick up where Dawn Draper left us in the 1970s to to visit a Midwestern basement, the unlikeliest of crucibles which yielded so much of what pop culture became. And we do so with an author familiar with regret who came to terms with his past spent in dungeons and became a believer. Today we have the pleasure of meeting novelist, essayist, and academic Paul Lafarge. 
In 2006, he wrote an essay for the literary magazine The Believer about his pilgrimage to Lake Geneva to play a Dungeons and Dragons campaign with legendary game creator E. Gary Gygax. Lafarge has written a number of pieces for publications like The New Yorker and Harper's and is the author of several novels including Ausman or The Distinction, Luminous Airplanes, and The Facts of Winter. He is a Guggenheim Fellowship winner, among other prizes, and will be taking part this year at the Subterranean Poetry Festival on September 20th at the Widow Jane Mine Cave in Rosendale, New York. His D&D essay has really stuck with me for almost 10 years now, and thus it's an honor to be meeting and speaking with him today. Welcome, Paul. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh... What's so special about a Midwest basement, and, and who is this Gary Gygax? And am I saying all these names incorrectly? No, you're saying them exactly correctly. Doesn't that sound like some creature in Dungeons & Dragons, or is that my imagination? No, it, it absolutely does. It sounds like a made-up name. Uh, in fact, it's Swiss, and Gary's parents were, uh, his father was a Swiss immigrant. Wow. What led him to create this game? Was it was it the location, his place in the world, or was it himself? It was both, I think. Uh, he was living in the town of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is about two hours north of Chicago, and it's a very pretty place, but um, there's not a lot going on. And uh, he was also a person who loved games, and he had loved games all his life. He played games constantly as a kid to the expense of more or less everything else, uh, certainly including his high school education. And he got into um, these complicated war games that the Avalon Hill Company started publishing in the 50s at some point. And they were uh, war games. The first one was called Tactics, which was a kind of generic simulation of uh, combat, you know, sort of some land battle. And then they published historical titles. You could fight the Battle of Gettysburg and the D-Day invasion and so on and so forth. And uh, Gary loved those games and he played them obsessively and he played an kind of especially involved version of them, which were uh, miniatures games where you would build a landscape on a table frequently in your basement because that was the room in the house that nobody else needed for anything. And, uh, you know, kind of like a model railroad landscape. And then you would move little miniature soldiers across the landscape and they would fight each other. And that was something that Gary loved to do. And he did it with friends and he wrote about it for fan magazines, for other people who like miniatures gaming. And eventually he decided that he wanted to make a miniatures game of his own. So he made a, a game called Chainmail, which was set in the Middle Ages. And you had a knight and your knight would fight other knights. And maybe an archer would swing by every now and then. And there was also a fantasy element. So there were wizards who would cast spells. And uh, the fantasy element really appealed to a guy named Dave Arneson, who was also in the Midwest, presumably in a basement of his own. And he came back and said, all right, Gary, I've got an idea. What we're going to do is 
we're going to explore the castle Blackmoor. You guys are each going to play one adventurer. You're going to wander through this castle. You're going to kill monsters. You're going to amass treasure. And maybe you'll kill each other if you feel like it just for fun. So they did, and it was incredibly fun. And Gary said, hey, this is a great idea. Um, he was uh, looking for collaborators to uh, develop games with. And he said, why don't we write up the rules to this incredibly exciting thing we just did? Um, and Dave came back with some rules, and Gary took them. And over the period of, I don't remember how long, a year maybe, he wrote up the rule books for the game that became Dungeons & Dragons. When did you start playing? When would, when's, the, when's the first time you got a basic set? I got a basic set when I was in fourth grade, I believe. So 1978 or 79. For better or worse, my father was a war games enthusiast. Hmm. He was someone who had played a lot of the Avalon Hill games in college. And he went by the hobby shop every now and then to see if any new titles had come in. And one day this thing called Dungeons and Dragons showed up and he thought, hey, this looks like fun. And then he thought, maybe this would be a fun thing to do with my kid. So uh, he brought it home and we started playing. And uh, he didn't realize that he was basically disposing of the next five years of my life <laughs> on purchase, but, um, but I enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, eventually I, I started playing with people my own age. Do you think this hobby shop is the same in every oh, town? It's exact, oh, I don't know if it's the same in every town. I don't know that every town has one. Um, but mine definitely had, I remember seeing copies of Dune and Lord of the Rings in this glass case with all the dice and the, uh, and the modules and everything was kind of dusty. So <laughs> what I can tell you for a fact is that this hobby shop still exists. It's called The Complete Strategist. It's on 33rd Street between 5th and 6th Avenue in Midtown Manhattan. And that it not only still exists, but as far as I can tell, it still has literally the same items for sale. In other words, there are things on the shelves there now, which I think were on the shelves when I went there in 1979. I don't think anyone has bought them since then, and they're just still there. <laughs> That's more of a museum, don't you think? Yeah, it is a kind of museum. Um, I mean, it's a it's a, a kind of a time capsule, and of course, the the people who used to go there in 1979 were, you know, were teenagers and and kind of pre-adolescents like me. And now, it's also still the same people. We're all still going there. We're just all in our mid 40s. Right. So it's a time capsule of us too. Okay, well, so do you remember the Christmas break of 1982? Um, why are you directing my attention toward this? It's because <laughs> – well, that was, that was actually the Christmas that I got my first basic set was 1982. Uh -huh. But that was also – I think that same Christmas break is when this Tom Hanks film, Mazes and Monsters, also oh, came out. yeah, Mazes and Monsters, and right. And so when I came back to school after Christmas break – a lot of my gamer friends couldn't play anymore. At that point in time, their right. parents outlawed the game. Could right. you explain this a little bit to our sure. audience? 
So Mazes and Monsters was based on a book. The movie was based on a book by Rona Jaffe, if I remember right. And that book, I'm not totally convinced that I'm going to get this story right now, was based on another book, which was a memoir by a private detective who had been sent to look for a kid, an undergraduate, who vanished during a game of Dungeons and Dragons, which uh, some players were conducting in the steam tunnels on the campus of the University of, I believe, Michigan. So, uh, I'm... I mean, that in itself is insane. That they got so far, they were at... So, I mean, in a way, it's kind of what they show in Mazes and Monsters, right? Where the kids are taking over, like, an old mine shaft or something. If yeah, I, remember I mean, I think, I think it's probably not very different from what kids at the University of Michigan had been doing for generations. James Dallas Egbert, sorry, was the name of the... Um, Good Lord, was he the name of the kid? Yes, uh, who disappeared. Uh, I mean, you know, college students do stupid things. That's kind of what college is for. You leave home and all of a sudden nobody is there to tell you what a complete idiot you're being. So you think what would be really fun would be to get incredibly drunk and wander through this dangerous forbidden space uh, with lots of things that could hurt us. And if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, it's a natural fit you know you think not only will i get drunk and wander through this dangerous forbidden space with lots of things that can hurt me but i'm going to do it in the character of an elf um so egbert was you know was one of the this group of people doing that and then he didn't didn't disappear had nothing to do with dungeons and dragons he had run away and i think he just like turned up at his father's house in louisiana um but everybody freaked out. Um, this private investigator published a book called The Dungeon Master, and then uh, the movie Mazes and Monsters came out, and all of a sudden people had the idea that playing Dungeons and Dragons would cause you to disappear into a steam tunnel, or what I find even stranger, that somehow it would make you into a Satanist, and that if you played Dungeons and Dragons, you might be able to do real magic and summon up a real demon. And so nobody could play because there was a fear that you might summon up demons. It was definitely tainted. Um, I mean, you know, if only, right? It's like the people who are actually playing the game would have loved to summon up demons. It would have been the best (laughs) thing ever. If, If we knew for a fact that we could summon up demons, we would never have done anything else. Um, but, uh, but of course it, it did give the game a kind of a bad reputation in some circles. Well, there's actually kind of two aspects to gameplay too. And it speaks to part of, you know, what you're saying about the folks. So there, I wish I could, I can't come up with what they're called now, but the people that dress up with foam swords and beat each other. Cosplay. LARPers. LARPers. That's what I'm looking for. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I experienced yeah. that for the first time recently, where they just go to the park and they do like these makeshift mazes where they're just whacking each other with foam, different, varying foam swords, different, like some of them were spears and stuff like that. What is that? When did that? Uh, that's part of the same world. You know, you're, 
acting out the uh, the actions of your character, um, you know, as an actor. That's not something that uh, Gary Gygax ever did or even something that he was remotely interested in doing, actually. He liked the the game to be a game, and it was for him a kind of war game that was about strategy and and playing well, not about putting on a funny hat and hitting somebody with a foam sword. But um, but people do like putting on funny hats and hitting each other with foam swords, <laughs> and so that happens too. Who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah. But so that's the combat aspect of the game, but there's also this uh, role playing aspect that is more about the imagination than actual. Oh yeah. Well, you can have both. I mean, the in a in a LARP or in a uh, so-called tabletop game, a game that you play with uh, with pencils and paper and dice without silly hats. Um, you know, the the thrill of the game for a lot of people is that you get to act as this other character. You get to to invent a a version of yourself who is presumably much more powerful and better looking and richer and more intelligent, or maybe not more intelligent, but, you know, in every other way better than you actually are. Um, And you get to act as that person. And then every so often you get to wail on some monsters and, uh, and destroy them. Yeah, you even go so far as to say that D&D in the 70s was kind of counterculture in that it wasn't, I mean, it thrived not on competition, but actually on teamwork so that the, yeah, the party yeah, could. Yeah, so that's one of the things about it that I find the most interesting. It's a game that, you know, the core audience for D&D when it came out was teenage boys. And the things that teenage boys like to do are often pretty violent and atrocious. You know, they like to kill a lot of things. They like to blow things up. And, a lot of and, raping going on. <laughs> yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of kind of creepy sexual stuff happening. Um, because that's what's happening in the fantasy life of a lot of teenage boys, you know. Um, but the, the surprising thing about the game is that it's not a game where you all end up killing each other. You know, it's not a game like Risk or like the Avalon Hill games where only one player can win. And that player wins at the expense of all of the other players. It's actually a game where in almost every case, the best strategy is to cooperate with your fellow players and to fight the world. and so it's not exactly utopian. I make this point in the in the article I wrote for the believer, but it's it's getting there. It's presenting you with a space to express all of your violent fantasies, but at the same time, it's giving you the opportunity to collaborate and to cooperate and to socialize with people like you, to form a group. When I was reading your article and The Believer, you gave me some kind of insight. I mean, because I had played many sessions, not many, but M-I-N-I, many sessions sure. of Dungeons & Dragons, like all through the 80s. When I was a little kid, I'd end up and try to play or whatever, but I never did it for hours and hours. So I don't think I ever got the insight on what it takes to to create that world. There's 
you say there's cooperation, but in a way there's not because there's two different aspects to D&D. The dungeon master and the, what is it called? You uh, created characters. Yeah, the players, the created individuals. So the insight that you gave me was the dungeon master creates the world. And then mm-hmm. the, but is the dungeon master like an opposite? Is he in opposition to the other players? Yeah, he's, no real, so, he's never a winner, in other words. Well, the Dungeon Master is a winner if it's fun. Yeah. Um, think about the Dungeon Master as the host at a party. And often the host of a party isn't the person who gets to drink, you know. Often a person who spends a lot of time running around, kind of making sure that everything is going smoothly, um, introducing people to each other, And that's a job, you know, it's not a a set of activities that in themselves seem like they would be inherently that fun. And yet people keep throwing parties because it's so satisfying to create a space in which other people have a great time. Being a dungeon master is a little bit like that. Sure, there's there's an opposition between the world, which is created by the dungeon master and the players, because the players have to defeat the monsters and they have to solve the puzzles which the dungeon master has invented and recover the treasure and often that involves destroying things. Um, But the dungeon master has to cooperate. If the dungeon master is, uh, sorry, with the players, if the dungeon master is out to get the players, the game is no fun for anyone. And in fact, since the dungeon master is the final arbiter of all decisions, And within the space of the game, functionally omnipotent, a dungeon master who wants to kill the players just will. You know, there's no, it's not an equal contest um, in that sense. But it's also a terrible decision if you're a dungeon master because then no one will ever play with you again. Because why would you play a game where the dungeon master just kills you? Right. Nobody nobody wants to come to your party. (laughs) No one one will come to your party. It's like you gave a sucky party and you fed everybody dirt. And everybody is like, we don't like eating dirt. We're going to go to a party at somebody else's house next time. Which, when the the module that you played with Gary Gygax, when he was the dungeon master, that that was actually written for more players. Yeah. And so you and your friend Wayne had to kind of adjust... We, we each played several characters. Uh, okay. um, I think we each took on, I can't remember how we did it, if we each took on two characters or if we each took on three characters or if we really just did it as two characters. But but you had to, instead of going through and killing the whole world, you kind of just tried not to be killed by this. Well, so Gary Gygax's style of play is... Uh, you know, it's his own style. And um, one feature of it is that he's not very interested in role playing. So there isn't a lot of gameplay, which is like you're having a conversation with, you know, an old sailor in a tavern and he tells you a story about a shipwreck. That doesn't happen so much. It's very problem-oriented and very combat-oriented. And it's really like, okay, you're in this place, you have a mission, now figure out how you're going to accomplish that mission. And uh, the other thing about that world is that it wasn't a world where the winning strategy 
was to kill everything. A lot of the things that uh, that appeared in that scenario were too powerful to too powerful to kill, and the only intelligent choice was to avoid them or to somehow deactivate them, you know, and get what you needed. Uh, that's a, a a pretty common aspect of the game. You know, it's fun to fight everything, but uh, past a certain point, it's really a terrible idea. Now I'm wondering about you being a writer. I mean, um, so what? What the thing that I realized about Dungeons and Dragons is that part of that, the really fun part for me, is that you're writing a novel as you go with the group of people. Yeah. And that's the role play aspect of it. Yeah. Do I you, agree. Do you think that is you were attracted to it because of that, or it actually kind of encouraged and nurtured your writing? Part of you. Well, it's, so I don't think that there's I don't think that there's a direct connection. I don't think that Dungeons and Dragons taught me how to write. Uh, I didn't write down the campaigns that I was involved in. I didn't ever try to turn them into stories. Um, I also didn't ever really write fantasy fiction. I read a ton of it, but um, it's not something I've I've ever been drawn to as a writer. What Dungeons and Dragons did for me is it created a space where it was okay to be lost in my imagination. And in fact, not only was it okay, it was incredibly fun. It was truly exhilarating and wonderful and stimulating and enough. Um, and I didn't feel guilty about it. And I didn't wonder if there was something else I should be doing I just thought, this is great. I want to do it all the time. And in a way, that's the relation I have to writing now. It's that same space. Um, and I think, I think I learned that from D&D. So one question that I'm curious about is this difference between the TSR hobbies rules versus the Wizard of the Coast rules. How, oh, how can yeah. they be so different that older gamers can't play the new game? I mean, I'm sure older gamers can play the new game if they if they care to. Um, uh, this particular old gamer doesn't feel like making the effort. Um, I played basic Dungeons and Dragons, and then I played advanced Dungeons and Dragons, and I stopped playing just before uh, the second edition of the rules came out, which was the first. No, it was, that was still a TSR edition, uh, but it came out sometime in the 80s. I was, I'd moved on to other things. Um, and there have been three or four or five editions now, and each one tries to improve on the last. So Gary was a very enthusiastic promoter of his work and he was a very uh hard-working guy he wasn't in some ways the world's best game designer his game his rules had some inconsistencies and there were parts of the rules that were too vague and there were other parts that were too specific and there were a lot of things that the rules didn't cover and so you know there were other reasons why the game evolved but one reason was that uh, people who had gotten very into the game and were now involved in uh, designing it wanted to improve on what Gary had done. 
And that process has continued for decades. Uh, the fact of the matter is that for me, the, the original rules are fine. They're good enough. And if I don't like them, I just change them anyway. I think it's interesting because it, it becomes like whatever you want it to be. More than anything, it's a, like a, a template. You get yeah. what I mean? That you yeah. can just slide into your own little creative. That This takes a lot of preparation. I was thinking about this when you were talking earlier because for for at least the dungeon master, that's a lot of planning. He has to have in his head how that wants to go before yeah. you guys even start. Yeah, absolutely. It's a ton of work. Um, <laughs> some dungeon, which is why almost everyone prefers to be a player. And Gary certainly preferred to be a player. And you can see why being a player is fun. You just, you know, stand outside the mouth of the cave and you're like, yeah, what's in here? And you go in. Whereas if you're the dungeon master, A, you already know what's inside the cave, but B, you've, you know, you had to actually plan it all out. And even if you, if you purchased a, a scenario written by someone else, you know, you had to acquaint yourself with it and sort of feel like you knew your way around it and, uh, and do some work there. Another basic question for our audience who doesn't know, what is a D20 system then? Uh, I think that that phrase actually has a pretty specific meaning. Uh, I think that a D20 system is, it's a set of rules which can be used in a number of different games. And uh, I'm actually, I don't play any of those games. So I'm not familiar with the system. I couldn't tell you very much about how they work. I, so do you think that's like the the ladder Wizard, Wizard of the Coast rules? No, so that I don't know. It seems I think like... this, is, this is a little bit sort of after my time in huh. terms of Dungeons and Dragons. Because it seems, I played I played with a group, oh, I don't know, about five years ago or so, but it seemed like the D20 was the, the deciding thing. So if you're going to check a door or something, you roll the D20 and it has to do with whatever characteristics you have. Yeah. So the D20, uh, within the, in the most general way, just refers to a 20-sided die, which is uh, something that, that has always been a part of, of Dungeons and & Dragons, and you can roll it and it'll generate a random number between 1 and 20, and that's useful for various things in the game. There's also something uh, that you referred to called the D20 system, which isn't just the die, it's a, a set of rules, which I, I imagine, you know, lean pretty hard on the 20-sided die. Hmm. Well, I've got to be honest, when I was 10 in 1982, those rules were impenetrable. It was so dense, I had no idea. And so me and my brother and my friends just basically kind of made it up as we went. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's I think, what a lot of people did. Um, and why not? You know, there's no standard play. There's no reason to have standard play. There are Dungeons & Dragons tournaments, and they're really fun, and the people who play in them are extraordinary, and they have great... Uh, great ability to do well. But, uh, but for most people, it's something that you play with your friends and often you'll play a whole lot of games with the same group. And at that point, why not just come up with house rules that are fun for you and your friends? You know, there's no international ranking of D&D players. It's not like <laughs> if you play with house rules, it doesn't count. 
There should be. <laughs> well, but why? I mean, no, I'm you know, it's, yeah, it's 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 more fun to play the way that you want to play, and uh, you know, so some people make up a lot of rules. Some people play games that are very storytelling based and have very few rules. Um, it's really up to the people involved. Oh, I got a question. I got a question. How long consecutively have you played in one uh, sitting? Uh, yeah, I have no idea. I've certainly played, <laughs> you know, I would guess it's, We're talking it's not about like crazy. A I would guess, no, uh, not, not without sleep. I've played somewhere between 12 and 16 hours without sleep when I was a kid. I, I definitely played games that ended at dawn. And I've played in, you know, in uh, in games that had more than one session, and it would take, you know, a number of, of meetings like that to complete a single uh, but it, it's scenario. Not really, it's not really recorded, though. I mean, it's like... No. It's like you said. It's a, I, th- I just think it's an interesting concept of this whole party, and the guy is like a host, and he has yeah. like festivities yeah. and ideas, and and yeah. like a schedule almost. Yeah, actually, I think probably one of the qualities of a good dungeon master is uh, is having a firm command of the game's pacing, you know, and knowing when uh, a beat in the story has gone on long enough, and it's time to kind of usher the players toward the next event. Yeah. So let's go a different direction. One of the things that we really like to play with on our show is the idea of synchronicity, which is just, you know, meaningful coincidence. Like, like yeah. having the name Gygax. And <laughs> sure, that's great. Stuff like, sure. stuff like that. Sure. So it's interesting to me, so this is the direction, like just – as as we're getting to know you and your work, your book, Ausman, or The Distinction, came out in 2001. Yeah. And I think at that same point in time, you moved back to New York City. Mm-hmm. And this movie, Mazes and Monsters, kind of culminates... Want it with him on the Twin Towers. On the Twin Towers. Well put. Um... um. So this is the point where I admit that I've never seen the movie Mazes and Monsters. <laughs> I just never, okay. I never saw it. Tom Hanks yeah. is compelled to go to the Twin Towers, and he has mm. to. He's going to jump off the Twin Towers when his friends come out and say, "It's only a game, buddy. You gotta come mm. back with us now." Mm. But it's literally mm. on the Twin. T- I mean, and there's mm. other stuff that other people have noticed. The fact that, like, uh, what is that? Um, Clear and quite close. What is that? Oh, Incredibly clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, right. Where once again, Tom Hanks is on the towers and. What he actually does is in that movie, his son becomes compelled to think that he jumped off like he was supposed to do in Amazing Monsters. But I think that Doug's hinting at of what you're. Well, I'm just, I just wanted to play a little bit with the idea of just your writing and Osman that book and regret, and it's just interesting because that work is looking at. Uh, what Paris was becoming, but then at the same time, it was about what it was losing. Yeah. And then when I think of it, you know, because after 9-11, there was this intense focus on that the World Trade Center site, and you realize that to create that site, there was a lot of 
New York, like nostalgic New York that they had to just get rid of, like Radio, yeah. Radio Row. Radio Row, yeah. There's a great book about that um, uh, that I will look for the title of, but I've now forgotten. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm just wondering if you made any connection in that respect, like from a meaningful coincidence of um, Osman creating something new and and coming out at the, at the same time. You know, it's it seems like we go through as as a culture every now and again moments where where here's this moment and there's a, a line in the sand and then everything after that's kind of different. Like John F. Kennedy um, or nine eleven. Yeah. Well so I wrote Houseman, I was done with that novel um uh long before nine eleven. Um I had I mean the book was out by them. Um, and I had turned in the final manuscript earlier in the spring. Um, and the idea that, that New York city was about to be, uh, transformed in that awful way was, was absolutely not, um, on my mind as I was writing the book. I was, you know, I really, I wasn't thinking about it at all, if anything, um, you know, when I was writing Houseman, I was living in San Francisco and it was the first internet boom and there was a whole lot of money flooding into uh, San Francisco then, you know, kind of as there is now. And there was a lot of new construction and there was a lot of talk about uh, eviction and displacement. And um, uh, Rebecca Solnit has a great book called Hollow City about that transformation in San Francisco. And that was, you know, that was definitely on my mind and it was in the background of, of Houseman for me. It was a, a thought that the story about Paris is also, it's a story about the present. I think, you know, 9-11 is, it's something quite different in a way. I mean, it's, it's traumatic in a, a completely different way uh, than the kind of um, planned transformation that Houseman carried out in Paris or that that um, developers were carrying out in San Francisco in the late 90s. On another, so another synchronicity is this summer I read Pynchon's Gravity Rain, Gravity's Rainbow the first time. Sure. And it seemed like the thing the thing that I got was how much density the, the actual rocket it had and it transcended like people and place and nation states. And it just had this will of its own to become. Yeah. But I kind of felt, you know, something similar in how, you know, sometimes places have this will, you know, like Paris, um, although it definitely seems like there was one grand architect in, in, in your book where he was definitely urging modernity onto this medieval backward place. Right. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how to, how to approach that. I think that one thing that the novel does or that I did in Houseman is maybe, uh, try to tell a story that's about systemic change um, by staging human characters who uh, 
who stand for um, processes that are in some ways not easy to conceptualize, although we can feel their uh, their results pretty viscerally. So Hausman, the person, was uh, a civil servant. You know, he was a very talented and ambitious civil servant. Um, but he wasn't the force that made Paris the way it is. He was instrumental in it, in its becoming. Um, but there were other forces in play. There was uh, the kind of the beginning of the industrial age, which had, you know, had reached Paris at that point um, and the economics of that. There was the political structure that the Emperor Napoleon III had put into place uh, and the, the sort of way that he had uh, arrogated a lot of the state's authority to himself so that it became possible to make something like um, the transformation that Hausmann did in Paris. And there was traffic, you know, there was modernity happening. There were more vehicles on the road and there was more stuff coming into Paris. There was more stuff going out of Paris. And it turned out that the city's infrastructure was inadequate to handle all that stuff. And there was also, you know, problems with sewage and drinking water and all of these things that, that accompany a growing urban population. And all of that stuff is transforming Paris. You know, that's what's making the city change. But Hausmann in the novel becomes the face of that. He becomes a person who's completely on board with the program and to the point where for the novel's purposes, he can stand for the program. And we can think about it as having been something that a single person did, which is really a fiction. Um, but maybe in some ways it's a, a comforting fiction. Hmm. And then Madeline is kind of... She's the old city. You know, yeah. she's, she's the thing that's getting, that's getting mistreated. And she's being and mistreated by both someone whose business is to construct and someone's business is to destroy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how it goes, right? You know, our our landscape keeps changing, and in order to make things, particularly in cities like Manhattan or you know, or Paris, where space is relatively limited, if you want something new, something old's got to go. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a, a kind of inevitable ambivalence about that. It's a gain and a loss. All right. So let's go even weirder. Every now, <laughs> every now and again, I sense just, I call it psychic weather where we, there, things move through that affect people in similar ways. It's almost like this psychic weather is pushing everyone's buttons in the same way, but how people respond is their own business, but oftentimes people respond the same way. Do you sense moments when big change happens to a place or to a people? And, you know, that kind of ends up becoming history? Um, or is that too woo-woo? Do I sense that? Because it feels like we're kind of in another moment of a pivot where things are where history is gathering its breath to do something new. Um, Talk about curveball questions, man. Sorry. <laughs> well, I don't know. So, 
I think that, um, you know, there are kind of a, a couple ways to go with that. And, and one is that, um, I don't feel, I don't feel more sensitive to it than other people. I think that in the case of San Francisco, you know, there really was this, uh, this thing that felt like a very dramatic change. And I was there when it felt very dramatic, uh, the first time around anyway, you know, in the nineties. And I noticed that and I thought that it was something that was worth writing about. And I think that, you know, that was, I was right. It was, it was worth writing about. It was a fascinating time. Um, and I think that there's a novel to be written about San Francisco now, you know, and in a way that I'd love to write that book next. But, you know, the other side of this is that we always want to think that we're on the cusp of some enormous change. And it's like, it's exciting, you know, it's really stimulating to think that, that our moment in history is unique. And that not only is it unique, but it's also either the beginning of an era or the end of an era, or maybe, maybe it's both. And I think that's often a, a kind of cognitive crutch more than it is anything else. It's a way of, of making a narrative that we, we want to care about, but it would be more accurate and in a way maybe more interesting for the right storyteller to say that it's not the case, you know, that things are changing, but that we're, we remain in the middle of history. Um, we've been there for a while, you know, with luck we'll be there for a while to come. And, and that, that the new era that we keep heralding is really an expression of our uh, hope more than it is of our historical situation. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. You've been listening to Doug and I try to penetrate the dungeons of Paul LaFarge on ThinkBook Radio, a production of thethinkbook.com. Information about the castle LaFarge can be found at paullafarge.com. For more information about the ThinkBook, our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thethinkbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, considering a, becoming a ThinkBook Plus membership. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archives, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, uh, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thethinkbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And remember, Jesus saves but everyone else takes full damage.
Yeah, that's why. 